0: God's grace and his peace are yours in Jesus Christ on this Lenten Wednesday. And this Psalm 142 is very impactful for me as I work with high school students, as you can imagine. Um, I talk to a lot of high school students after school. I kind of have one of those open rooms. I'm also the room that has a couch and so the students tend to like that and so at the end of the day a couple of them kind of just crash there and I have really good conversations with them and this subject of feeling like there's nobody there or that the world around you is your enemy or that, you know, kind of the walls are caving in on me and that this, 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 uh, this feeling of desolation is very present sometimes with high school students in the midst of the life. I mean it's tough. Being a teenager, and it always has been, and it seems like our culture is making it harder and harder as time goes on, as we uh, continue to live in this post-Christian society. And so, I gave you a little uh, snippet, a little preview of this data I have. I'm going to give you a little bit more of this now in depth from this Cigna survey. And so, to give you an idea of the method here, so Cigna, the, the the health company, what they did is they used the UCLA Loneliness Scale, and so the evaluation of loneliness was measured by a score of 43 or higher. It has 20 questions. And what it does is it's frequently referenced and acknowledged in academic circles to measure and gauge loneliness. So this is a well-respected survey that they did. So as I mentioned before, 20,000 U.S. adults 18 and older. Some of this data may kind of surprise you because it's easy to stereotype certain generations or people that use social media or people that are well-connected or live in the cities instead of in rural areas. But in general, this cuts across all demographics, this cuts across all generations, all cultures, cultures, all races, this is something that's kind of universally shared in the United States. Another um, stat, this might surprise you, Generation Z, thats those are the people that are seniors in uh, high school right now, junior, seniors, and also uh, college students, so around 17, 18 to about 22. It is the loneliest generation and claims to be in worse health than older generations. So not 60-year-olds, not 40-year-olds or 80-year-olds, something like that, Generation Z, 18 to 22, people in late high school, early college, now claim to be unhealthy compared to other generations. Social media alone is not a predictor of loneliness. Respondents defined as very heavy heavy users of social media have a loneliness score that is not really that different from those who never use social media. Because that was my thought when I first read this study was, if you're on Facebook all the time and you see everybody else's life, or you're on Snapchat or Instagram or whatever it is that you use, as you're on it and you're seeing how everybody else is so happy and living that sort of special life that they only allow you to see, you would think that that would create a certain anxiety or depression or loneliness, but it's actually not the main reason for that. Some other data from this. Americans who live with others are less likely to be lonely compared to those who live alone. However, this does not apply to single parents or guardians who have an average loneliness score of 48.2 even though they live with children. And as Families continue to uh, be under attack, and as uh, marriages dissolve, and as the family as a unit continues to be under attack from the culture, that's worrisome as a culture. Um, One in five, as I mentioned before, never feel close, and there's another one in five that say that there are people that they can even talk to, that it's rare they don't have it. And so, we, again, I, I, I don't want to depress you with this data, but it shows you the nature of where we live, and we are not immune. I, myself, as somebody who's you know, in the high school, and I'm always busy and always working, and I have a wonderful wife at home, and I have four kids, there are still moments where you can feel isolated. I know Pastor Jim often talks about that, is that the devil has some really favorite things he likes to do with men in particular, and that's keep them busy and alone. I don't know if you've heard him say that before, and he has his own way of saying it. But I mean, the the point being is, is it's a way for the forces that work in this world, that are not our friends, our enemies, to work on us as human beings, both men and women in this culture, and especially young people. And so Psalm 142, I think, resonates with us in that way. It's a prayer of desolation and loneliness from someone who simply feels powerless without any place to rest. And it's interesting because David prays in the third person. Did you notice that? He doesn't say, God help me. It's like, I, your servant, am praying to the Lord, even though he's talking to God. And the reason that is, is it's out of respect. When you ask the king for something in this culture, you didn't say, hey, you give me something. You said, I, your humble servant, am asking the Lord, you, you, you groveled, basically, at the Lord's feet, the king's feet, to ask. So that shows you how desperate and how respectful David is as he writes this psalm. So he feels so abandoned that on this place, a person of support, on the place that a person or helper would be on the right hand, there's nobody there. Because you're right-hand man. We still say that sometimes, I have a right-hand man, here there's nobody at his right hand. So he doesn't even have that friend with him at this moment to help him out, that, that person that can at least encourage him. He is utterly and absolutely alone. So this person of helplessness is described with a metaphor, in this case, chains. He actually feels like he's in prison. He's so bogged down by this, by this loneliness and this emptiness. And it's interesting, if you go through biblical history, you can find other examples of this. And so, as you know, I'm a fan of that book, Christ in the Psalms, by Reardon, that's that Eastern Orthodox pastor, and of course, I Lutheranize it, but, he, but it's, he's awesome. And he has some really interesting thoughts about this in biblical history. Because remember, God's people have often prayed the Psalms, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New. It's the prayer book, the Psalter, is the prayer book of the church, and it was in the Old Testament. So I thought this was a cool way of thinking about this. So with David in particular, sometime as they compiled the Psalms, the uh, the, uh, the prefix on this, that he was in a cave, shows up pretty early on. And so we think this is probably a reference when he was in a cave hiding from Saul. And so it might relate back to Psalm 57. If you've never read Psalm 57 before, you can kind of do that on your own time. We think it might relate to that. But 1 Samuel 22 tells of him seeking refuge from Saul in the cave of Adullam. And two chapters later, there's a dramatic description of David's concealment from Saul in a cave near Ajendi by the Dead Sea. So maybe those scenes are what the scribal hand was thinking of when he wrote this down. So it's easy to think of this psalm as inspired by those experiences. Another option here is maybe when he's fleeing Absalom, his son, during that civil war. So here's some other examples from scripture that might kind of, I guess, resonate with us in this way. So for example, what about Jacob fleeing from Esau? So he's walking alone, going from Beersheba to Haran at the top of the Fertile Crescent. So you imagine the Fertile Crescent, that's like Iraq, Syria, that region of the world. Okay? Such a prayer could have been made just before he laid his head on the stone. Right? He's using a rock as a pillow. I cried to you, O Lord, and I said, You are my hope in the land of the living, my inheritance. Attend to my prayer, for I'm greatly humbled. That's another translation of this psalm. Or maybe jump forward to Joseph, his son, sold into slavery by his own brothers, falsely accused thrown into prison with no friend in the world. This could have simply been his evening prayer. I look to the right hand, and there was no one there to help me. Flight itself, or rescue itself, isn't there for me. There was no guardian for my soul. I could see Joseph saying that, right, when he's first put in the prison. The sentiments of the psalm also fit with Elijah living in secrecy in the desert, then making a long trek down the Sinai, pursued by the forces of Jezebel, and he meets the Lord at the ancient cave. That story, by the way, is one of the coolest parts of the nativity story, when there's like this living history of the people, right? And the Lord wasn't in the wind, and he wasn't in the fire, but in a still, small voice and they keep telling that story, and it shows you how communally they're they're remembering this history, this salvation history. I love that part of the nativity story, because that oral culture was so strong. So at that cave, think about this. He might have said, even as my spirit takes its leave of me, you are the knower of my paths. In the way I walk, they have hidden a snare for me. Jezebel and Ahab were certainly doing that, laying snares for Elijah. It could have even been on the, Psalms, uh, the lips excuse me, of Jeremiah, when he was thrown into the well, drawing out of it only to be imprisoned until the fall of Jerusalem. From the depths, from the dungeon, free my soul, until the praising of your holy name. The righteous shall await me until you recompense me. Again, I'm giving you a, a translation from this that's a little different. No effort is needed to hear this prayer welling up from the throat of Job as he's sitting on the dung heap. Um, basically nobody can console him. His friends are certainly not helping, right? So with my voice I've cried to the Lord. With my voice I've prayed to the Lord. Before him will I pour out my prayer. My desolation shall I declare in his presence. Job had every right to pray that prayer, right? So you're seeing this theme throughout history, and then, of course, even more than this is, of course, Christ himself when he's abandoned during Holy Week the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, abandoned by his closest friends, betrayed by one of them, and denied in public by another, but finding his sole refuge in the Father. And that's the good news about this. And that's one of the reasons I chose that Hebrews passage, which often talks, the book of Hebrews in general is one of my favorites, because it often talks about the great high priest who commiserates. He knows what it's like to be a human being. We have that great high priest so we can approach the throne boldly. All those passages are so great during the season of Lent, because it would be very tempting for us in this lonely culture to say, I don't have a shot. I'm surrounded by darkness. I have all these things that are happening around me. My friends are having all these issues. They can't help me. They're having the same issues I am. That seems like that the culture is darkening, that sin is getting worse, that people are rejecting God, and in some cases, even actively opposing him. So in a culture like that, relying on somebody who has been there is awesome. Because otherwise we would have no hope in the world. So thanks be to God for the cross and the empty tomb in this regard. Because in our own lives we have a Savior who understands. In the passage from Hebrews that was read, we can trust that the promises of Christ are true and that in God we truly have refuge. So when you do feel alone, or overwhelmed by your sin, or the brokenness of this world, when you're just too busy and you can't ever slow down, and whatever it is that's uh, you know, assailing you in your life, know that you're never alone, and that in your weakness, you triumph in Christ alone through the cross, and of course, after the cross, the empty tomb. So that's my thought for you tonight. Amen.